0: This episode first appeared in our sister podcast, Engineering Matters. According to Greek mythology, a hero called Theseus was chosen to confront and kill a terrible monster with the head and tail of a bull and the body of a man.
1: As Theseus stepped cautiously into the beast's lair, he unwound a golden thread given to him by the king's beautiful daughter
0: because the monster was contained within the labyrinth. A maze designed to be so fiendishly complex and intricate that no mortal who entered would ever be able to find their way out again.
1: As Theseus moved further and further into the dark labyrinth, corridors spread away from him in all directions. He felt eyes on him, and panic began to catch in his throat. But the bold hero pressed on.
0: He defeated and slew the minotaur.
1: and then followed the golden thread to escape from the labyrinth.
0: He returned to Athens a hero. As the founder hero of Athens, Theseus was supposed to be a man surpassing other men. His triumphs towered over the humdrum life of ordinary people in the Greek heroic age, and yet…
1: And yet, at least some of his trials may sound familiar to modern people.
0: It is a feeling many of us have. As we step cautiously into the station of an unfamiliar train line, corridors spread away from us in all directions. We feel angry eyes upon us as we pause and try to find a helpful sign and the panic begins to rise.
1: Why has this station been designed this way? Did the architect intend to make it so no mere mortal could find their train?
0: We grip our phones tightly, but they are no golden thread and cannot help us.
1: After several dead ends, visiting incorrect platforms and asking a station manager for directions, we eventually find our trains and move on with our journeys. But does it really have to be this way?
0: Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I'm Alex Conacher.
1: And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne.
0: This episode we are looking at a new tool in the designer's armoury that might eliminate the need for a golden thread.
1: For decades, passengers have had to work around awkward station designs and confusing signage. We all have that chief offender, the one we don't really get.
0: A major reason for this is it has simply been too difficult to predict how people will feel and react inside a station. Where will their eyes be drawn while crowds of people are flooding all around them and they have a split second to decide to turn left or to turn right?
1: It's even worse for people with disabilities, who have historically been forgotten about or ignored.
0: But a new rail project is underway in the UK. Armed with new technology and with a mandate to innovate, it is working to ensure that the stations of the future do not repeat the mistakes of the past.
1: They will be easy and efficient to navigate, both for the mass of the crowd and also on an individual level.
0: To pull this off required three separate technologies to be used together for the first time. It needed dozens of members of the public and designers to volunteer their time, and it required the largest station model the development team had ever seen.
1: The project is High Speed 2.
0: All that and more in a moment, but first a message from this episode's sponsor.
2: Support for this episode comes from Surumi UK. Surumi UK are the leading manufacturer of high-quality single and three-phase submersible pumps that are developed for even the toughest of conditions. Their products are built with superior quality, producing highly durable water pumps that are designed for a wide range of dewatering applications, including tunnelling, mining and other construction projects. They recognise that tunnels are digging deeper and demands are increasing. That's why Surumi UK provide a wide range of reliable products designed for pumping almost any type of liquid. Surumi UK pride themselves on providing a first-class service for their customers with maintenance-friendly products that reduce costs for the users. With that said, they live up to the slogan that their products are stronger for longer, as all their submersible products are accompanied by a three-year guarantee. To find out more, visit their website www.surumi.co.uk And that's Surumi
0: spelt T-S-U-R-U-M-I And now, back to the episode. High Speed 2 is the UK's latest transport megaproject. Billed as the largest ever investment in the country's rail, Its first phase will link London in the south via 230 kilometres of high-speed rail with Birmingham in the West Midlands. It is due to open in the 2030s and run trains at up to 360 kilometres per hour or 225 miles per hour.
1: The southern terminus is at London Euston. Then on a journey north, it passes through a super hub in Northwest London, allowing passenger interchange with Crossrail. Then it runs fast to a Birmingham interchange station followed by the northern terminus of phase one, Curzon Street Station.
0: The important station for this episode is Old Oak Common, that northwest London interchange.
1: This is because it was the focus of an experimental project to see if we can improve this critical but hard-to-predict factor.
0: The passenger experience in the stations. But before we get to that, there is something important to understand about high-speed too.
1: It's fixated on innovation and has a division within the organisation dedicated to testing new ideas and new technologies.
3: HS2 have such an opportunity to build differently and to to really innovate in how we are building this fantastic project.
0: This is Heather Donald, Innovation Manager at High Speed 2. Her role is to implement and monitor innovation projects, primarily at the moment on the phase one stations She also liaises with UK academia and the supply chain to support innovation test projects.
1: And there are four main areas HS2 looks to innovate within. So
3: firstly is around improving productivity. We also look to innovate within the area of environment. So what we can do to reduce carbon, to remove carbon fuels, and to have a positive impact on biodiversity. The third area is all around safety innovation and what we can do to really leave a health, safety and wellbeing legacy. And then finally, and most importantly for
1: today's episode,
3: is around customer experience. So we are really committed to changing the standards for customer experience, both in our stations and on our railways. So we're really thinking about how we can design by putting the customer at the heart of what we're doing.
0: The High Speed 2 approach to dealing with a new idea or a new piece of kit is to design a test project that might involve a single work site. They implement out the tech to see how it works, de-risk its use, and learn from the experiment before rolling it out across the entire programme, assuming the experiment is successful.
1: A good example of this is piling. The piling sector has not really changed the way
3: in which we, we do piling foundations for a long time, but we have really started to focus on that within HS2, around how we can really change practices. So we've got a couple of great projects in that area.
0: One of these is Euston Station, the complex southern terminus of High Speed 2. They are working with Kelt Bray using hyperpiles. These are reusable precast piles and High Speed 2 are hoping to prove the technology on the project.
1: In this way, HS2 is not just acting for its own benefit. It's taken on a mandate to incubate technologies that will benefit the wider infrastructure and construction industry.
0: High Speed 2 has about 120 of these initiatives across the four focus areas and brings in ideas from across its supply chain. But resources are prioritised and some ideas are better than others. One that really stood out was put forward by HS2's consultant and station designer, WSP, and a man called David Watts, managing director of a company called MIMA.
4: So yeah, so my background, I I started training to be an industrial designer. And then whilst I was at uni doing industrial design, I, I, I suppose I started to feel that I wanted to focus more on thinking about people and understanding people more and how we designed for them
1: ergonomics was a module offered on the design course at Loughborough University. So David went for it and eventually switched discipline completely.
4: Which means I've always viewed myself as an ergonomist but an ergonomist as a designer rather than you know just a, a straight ergonomist or so you know I've very, always been very interested in the blending um, I suppose between the two. But it means you know in, 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 in its broadest terms that we try and understand what people are doing
0: to try to design environments that are as suited to human use as possible. So what are the cognitive and physical capabilities of people? What are their strengths, their weaknesses? How can a task be made safer and easier?
1: Ergonomics has always been very research-led, observation and interview.
0: There's a whole
4: toolkit around how we talk to people, observe and watch their behaviour and watch what they're doing um, and and can draw analysis from that. There's a whole toolkit of analytical methodologies that we can use, task analysis and so on to give us structure in terms of looking at at the activities people are doing. And then there are also tools in which we we can start to explore things like people's workload, likelihood of making errors over particular tasks.
0: Ergonomics can be seen as an approach to human centered design, and this has a real place in designing infrastructure. How do people find their way through a station? How useful is a sign where it is? And how much more useful might it be in a different location? Wayfinding is all about that human challenge of finding our way.
1: See Engineering Matters Episode 2 Lost in Spaces for an exploration of the topic of wayfinding in airports.
4: But essentially, a lot of the work and the research that we do to explore some of those those problem areas is about engaging with people, sitting with them, talking to them, understanding what they're trying to do, analysing that and then watching and observing.
0: Today, the principles of human-centred design are much the same. But thanks to a test project on High Speed 2, there is now one enormous difference.
1: Designers have struggled in the past to provide evidence about how people would behave and how their design would influence that.
0: But a new way of assessing the passenger's experience of a particular station design provides hard data and leaves no space for doubt. And it may change the way we design busy, complicated spaces forever.
1: And the revolution began at Old Oak Common, that HS2 crossrail interchange in northwest London.
4: We do a lot of work around wayfinding and trying to explore how we help people navigate environments. And one of the things I think we are acutely aware of as wayfinding designers is as good as our designers are, and it's the same when we look at the work that other practices do, there are some things that are just difficult to predict when you're working on plans looking at plans, that it's only when you stand in the real environment that suddenly you realise, oh actually I'm standing here and I can see these signs in front of me, but I can also see at the corner of my eye some other signs over there. You know, we've all been in those environments where some you know, well oh, that, that that says something different over there. And that's really hard to spot on on plan.
1: Designers and ergonomists will bring end users into the design process, test ideas and layouts on them, and finesse the design or prototype.
4: And that's really difficult as anyone working in the built environment knows that if you try and engage members of the public, they're just not used to reading drawings like an architect is or, you know, some of our design team. So it's very difficult for them to give any kind of meaningful feedback. So we started to explore this a few years ago thinking about, well, merging immersive tech is is surely the answer. We can... Build a, a virtual space, we can stick a headset on, we can see all of those things that we can see when we get in the real environment, and we can bring people in and, and let them explore the space.
0: But David and the team were very conscious that at an early stage of design, the visuals are largely based on what the architects produce, which wonderfully show off the architecture and give very little else.
4: You know, they're usually from some camera position, 40 feet off the ground, floating around and, you know, all the people in the space, there's hardly anyone there and they're all kind of greyed out and, um, you know, transparent and so on. That's not what being in a railway station or an airport is actually like when there's a thousand people there and you can't see the sign over there because actually there's a Burger King behind it who do a much better job than other than anyone else of attracting your attention so that was the kind of the genesis of the project is how do we build an immersive environment where we can pick up all those things but then how do we make that environment realistic let's take the architecture you know that's fantastic but let's make it how it will really be let's put five thousand people in all moving around and make it really confusing and put loads of advertising in and, and so on
1: added to the VR idea was eye-tracking technology from the Swedish technology company, Tobii. This would allow the project team to study exactly where people were looking, when, and what distracted them in each virtual environment.
0: David and Maima had been working with High Speed 2 for nearly a decade across various passenger experience-related projects. And they had heard through the collaboration with WSP about the Innovation Fund and decided to propose this technology as a test project but they realized there was a way this tool could be improved even further
4: an opportunity came about because we have a part of our team is based down in the fuse box in brighton which is part of the digital catapult structure
1: the fuse box is a digital innovation hub and the digital catapult is a government entity to fund and accelerate growth in key technology fields
4: through that, we came into contact with MTech, who are another of the partners we brought in. They've got a really interesting emerging technology that they've been developing that looks at how you can measure people's emotions in a virtual environment through sensors built into the headset.
0: This emotion data can support the post-test interviews with the users. Although panic and irritation are obvious emotions... Sometimes stress levels are much higher than people realise. Comparing this data to where the user was and where they were looking is incredibly valuable for designers.
1: And as is often the case with design, it is at its best when it goes completely unnoticed.
4: And I sometimes say frivolously, I think our aim is to, if you can stop people saying, oh, why is it designed like that? It's so annoying. If we, can, if we can cut out more of those, then we're, we're kind of doing a good job. Because actually good usable design almost shouldn't be noticed. Stuff just works and it's great if we can have through design you know you can have those moments where actually you appreciate it and go oh, do you know that just you know, that works really that's really clever that's really smart but actually a lot of the things like wayfinding it, it's such a a kind of a functional thing for us when we are in an environment that actually the success of that is if no one notices it. If people just find their way, it's not one of those things usually that people are going to go, ah, oh, wayfinding was amazing.
5: So what we see this as, especially with the way that technology is moving so rapidly, obviously we want to be able to keep up with this.
0: This is Kevin White, technical director for information modelling at WSP. He began his career doing photogrammetry. Which is extracting 3d information from photos in the days before computers now he has responsibility for cad computer-aided design and bim building information modeling for the company's design work
1: and for him technology is fundamentally about bringing all of the information you have and any future information you might get into one place
5: wsp wants to build on that i'd say and and also these other technologies to make the whole design process a lot more efficient. If we can get people involved in the 3D model a lot more, it, we want to start driving away from having to produce drawings. It takes a lot of time to produce drawings. We, we're not saying drawings are going to disappear yet. Um, there will be still a need for drawings, but perhaps even less drawings. And if we can get people involved in the 3D model a lot earlier and like throughout the design process, It will make our it will make everything a lot more efficient and and it's involving people into the 3D models to be able to review things directly and live into the 3D model.
0: But when an immersive environment such as this has been generated, it is useful not just for the end users, but also for the designers themselves to step into their design and really experience it
5: we've now got the opportunity that this technology can be used on the other stations you know it, it was easy to take what we've done to implement it onto the other stations but we want to now look at it further you know it, it's been a great trial but we've realized we can enhance it more and start to use it for additional functionality as well it's it's quite an exciting time because we prove it can be done but now it's what can we do next
1: Next, we'll be linking the VR tool directly to the digital twin, allowing updates to the design to be replicated in the VR in real time. The team also want to see additional information available in the VR, information that might have utility for other users. Things like
5: fire evacuation, emergency services, um, etc. So we've got a long list of things now which we're going to go through and work out which are the best ones to actually take forward basically the reason we want these live updates and linking it to our digital twin is we don't want to be copying data out and converting things because as soon as we do that things go out of date if we can get it linked to our live models obviously subject to the fact that they've got the right security permissions and they've been approved properly you know they've gone through that approval process it's giving the it's making that data accessible to a wider audience as well We can ensure that that is quickly getting out to the people who need that information you know with our digital twin um, that's a web-based application The that's available to everybody on the project and it's it's updated regularly it's it's a very quick way of capturing design issues people can especially with remote working they can see everything on their screen. They don't have to go and see specifically a CAD user. If they find an issue, they can flag it up there and then.
0: And then that goes out to the whole project team instantly, making things a lot easier. For Kevin, the other key benefit of this technology is bringing input from a greater range of people into the design process. And he expects to see more of this in future.
5: We're very close to it now um, because, Obviously, there's a lot of different data formats that get used in the design process. Um, Fortunately, with the introduction of our digital twin, we we are able to bring potentially different software formats all together into this single user interface without having to convert data, and that's the key thing. We're very close and we're working with our software suppliers to be able to get it straight out into VR. And we think within probably, yeah, within probably about 2 or 3 months we should be in that position where we'll be able to get that directly into the virtual reality model
6: so when i was told about this project uh, cuz i'm very keen on digital engineering and things like vr and how we can develop our designs through different types of you know me- media and technology uh, technology items. And um, I, I thought this was a great project to, ex, you know, to explore and to be involved with.
0: This is Carolina Morales. She was the delivery manager for the urban realm at Old Oak Common. And managing the VR innovation project was something she oversaw last year.
6: That's something that hasn't been tested before in terms of capturing the, motion, you know, this the, what people are feeling how they are perceiving the signage and things like that. So this is a new a new project and so um, we, you know, we haven't had that in the past.
1: Carolina is one of the engineers who used the tool herself, entering the virtual world.
6: Yeah, so I did participate in the trial and it was quite amazing to, to be there and walk up. Obviously, it's just getting the grip of how the technology works, but... The fact that after the um, trial, you were able to have the discussions with the uh, uh, VR team to re, you know, re uh, review some of the items that you had gone through to try and explain, you know, they kind of saw oh, you stopped here for a little bit and what were you thinking about or why did you make this decision and so on. So that, that was pretty amazing. There were challenges.
1: The threat of COVID defined 2020. And to carry out the trial in that setting required a lot of cleaning, sanitising and other safety procedures. This slowed everything down and was the big risk to the project.
0: Carolina and Heather were both nervous that this could derail the project. But with hard work, the team tested the 70 people and declared the trial a success.
6: And then the other challenges were more due to the um, models, the files that we were using. So we have the design files, the drawing files, the CAD drawings, and to convert that data into what is needed to create a virtual reality model. The model was by far the largest the team had ever worked with.
1: Transferring the CAD files into a programme called Unity took a long time, and WSP provided the trial with more powerful computers.
6: There was one, one time where David sent us a model because we said we want to see how it looks like and so on and he sent us this link and he just crashed our machine (laughs) so it definitely you know that's another constraint that for these type of projects it's all about modeling and moving around the space require a huge you know amount of space in, in a machine things that you need to keep in mind for these kind of projects going forward
0: A true measure of the success of a project like this is avoiding the necessity of future rework, which is potentially a huge saving in time and resources. So for example, if there are signs that weren't functioning correctly, the owner would not have to bring in a new consultant to make changes. Even for one sign, which might be powered, this could involve a lot of follow-on work to fix properly.
1: Another huge benefit is designing for people with impaired mobility historically people with these issues have often been ignored in station design now that's no longer the case and tools such as immersive vr can help assess these needs and this was a key part of the trial project and that
6: was amazing to you know to understand how from their perspective how things change completely like how you perceive designs how the perception changes and i was i think that was an absolutely key key point on this trial was to have had um, participants with impaired mobility who could provide their feedback, um, which is fabulous to these kind of designs. You know, you don't you don't get you you do get consultations throughout the design phases, but not in this immersive way, where you can see them moving around, what difficulties they they might find. Um, that are not necessarily visible, as you do the science.
0: She also mentioned a stakeholder engagement meeting. The team had a successful test and ideas for where the technology could go in the future. But this is something that could fundamentally alter the way we design and use infrastructure, so a lot of people could have ideas for potential uses.
1: Aside from training emergency services, regular maintenance work and other HS2 training can benefit from this tool. The team also think public outreach and presentations in schools may be some unexpected benefits.
0: Currently, High Speed 2 is looking at how to create similar models for its other stations and at different stages of construction. Here's Heather.
3: So at the minute we're in that explore exploration stage where we're we're working out what other stations would like, would would see the benefit of this technology to test their station designs. Also thinking about for some of our our, our later stations, could we test designs at an even earlier stage? So, yes, lot there's lots of conversation ongoing about where we can use it on other stations. It's still in the kind of pipeline conversations at the
1: moment, and there's also a push to work out all the different potential user groups they could test and learn from, similar to Carolina's stakeholder workshop.
3: The list is kind of endless as to the feedback that you can get, and I think it's it's really dynamic in that sense, in that we've got lots and lots of people across the program seeing the benefit. And we just, yeah, we have a real opportunity in order to get more more types of users, getting their feedback.
0: David at MIMA is understandably happy to have a successful trial for the tool and thinks High Speed 2 deserves more credit for investments in innovation.
4: It's always had a very strong culture and ethos that the, the, the customer experience, the passenger experience was a really fundamental part of what they were wanting to do and they wanted to challenge They didn't want to just build another two or three St Pancrases and run the same service that we do now. They wanted to, you know, I think everyone on the project knew, you know, this is Greenfield. How often do you get to build a Greenfield transport system?
1: And so the options were far broader than they often are on an infrastructure project in a dense city, full of old developments such as London.
0: This is also a big win for human-centred design. And a way experience can be quantified and given a more prominent position on future infrastructure projects. As a career ergonomist, David approves of this too.
4: I think that is it. it, it I think it has that power, which yeah is is, is definitely part of the attraction because you know it is a, it is a you know and we recognise the challenge that sometimes talking about what we do is difficult for. Other disciplines to to understand because it's kind of hard to quantify and, and, and make more tangible. So you know this is this is another good tool in the armory, as you say, to to be able to influence that.
1: And passengers will benefit finding the light at the end of the labyrinth with no need for the golden thread.
0: The Tunneling Podcast is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our executive producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Surumi UK, and also to our guests from WSP, from MIMA and from Highspeed 2. Thank you for listening. You can find The Tunneling Podcast on all podcast apps and on LinkedIn.